0: Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. My co host Joe Jordan is on the way. Today on the program, a look at how previous climate change in early Earth's history can help us understand global warming and what's to come for future climate change. Our guest will be Jim Zakos, Professor and Chair of Earth and Planetary Sciences at UC Santa Cruz. And if you're interested in our podcast here at Planet Watch, you can go to planetwatch.com. That's planetwatchradio.com and subscribe to our podcast. You'll get it delivered to your phone or your device every week. A new episode. That's again, Radio Planet Watch. Um, That's our Gmail account, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And our website, Planet Watch Radio. So if you got all that straight, we'll begin We always start, as we usually do, with a newscast. And I'll begin with a story that is about the weather, but also about climate change. Sub-freezing temperatures have spread across much of Europe over the past week, stretching from Poland to Spain. Snow fell in Rome for the first time in six years. Britain issued a red alert warning. Norway recorded the lowest temperatures of the cold snap minus 43 degrees Fahrenheit in the southeast part of the country on Thursday. If Europe feels like the Arctic right now, the Arctic itself is balmy by comparison. The North Pole is above the freezing mark in the dead of winter. There are no direct measurements there, but merging satellite data with other temperature data shows that temperatures soared this week to 35 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 2 degrees Celsius. That is 50 degrees Fahrenheit above normal and 78 degrees warmer than in parts of Norway. And that is because of the polar vortex a kind of a weather system which keeps the cold air in the Arctic from sinking south, it has weakened, and that allows frigid temperatures to drop into Europe. And even as far as Egypt, there was snow on the pyramids this last week, which is something to think about right there. We have Maya Rodriguez with us here in the studio, and she's going to tell us something about um, some studies that show that indeed wind and solar perhaps could be more prevalent than they are today in
1: the United States. Maya? A new study reveals great potential for wind and solar power in the U.S. According to scientists at University of California, Irvine, solar and wind could reliably supply up to 80% of the country's electricity demand. Researchers analyzed 36 years' worth of U.S. weather data to determine the possibilities and obstacles of wind and solar power from a geophysical standpoint. The study found that even with the variables of weather, such as cloudy and windless days, solar and wind power could still generate. Up, um, I'm sorry, around four-fifths of our electricity, according to the research team. In order to accomplish this, the U.S. would need a continental transmission network and the ability to store 12 hours of the country's electricity demand. In order to supply 100% of the electricity supply, the country would need to store several weeks' worth of energy. Despite this potential, the U.S. Energy Information Administration states that wind and solar power provided only 6.5% of the electricity generated in 2016. Well, that's quite a gap.
0: (laughs) We have a long way to go, and thus uh, we hope that the solar and wind industry figure out that storage problem and also... Uh, hopefully get some support from our government to expand as fast as possible. Uh, Tommy Martin is one of our interns who couldn't be here today because it was his mom's birthday. Dutiful son. But he did send this report from home to you.
2: China's main legislative body, the National People's Congress, will draft a law to fight soil pollution this week, along with six other pieces of environmental legislation. From air and water pollution to protection of the marine environment and wildlife, China is taking a broad approach to aid their country's environmental health. In the past five annual meetings of the National People's Congress, environmental issues have been front and center with the adoption and revision of about 20 laws and bills focusing on a healthy ecology. One revision of a 2015 environmental tax could charge polluters up to $15,000 a day if they do not stop emissions after being alerted. The draft law on soil prevention and control is meant to tackle a problem uncovered by a 2013 survey of Chinese farmland which discovered 8 million acres, roughly the size of Belgium, which is deemed too polluted to grow crops. With two revisions already completed in June and December of last year, the law could be adopted at this week's conference.
0: Thank you to Tommy Martin for that report. This is Planet Watch right here, and a special thank you to our sponsor, MZ. Thank you very much, Michael Zwirling, for sponsoring this program here on KSCO, so that we may... ...broadcast to the local Santa Cruz area, as well as our friends in Chapel Hill, North Carolina... ...and also Columbus, Ohio. A big shout-out to them, as well as our sometimes listeners in Clay County, West Virginia. I'd like to introduce our guest now. His name is James Zakos. We'll call him Jim today, if he doesn't mind. I hope that's okay with you. I don't mind. Thank you. He is Professor and Chair of Earth and Planetary Sciences at the University of California at Santa Cruz... And a little-known fact, he was born in the desert, the Mojave Desert, where it was very hot. Maybe that had something to do with his interest in global warming, but we'll find out in just a moment. He did grow up in the suburbs of uh, New York City after that. He earned his uh, B.S. in geology from SUNY and Ph.D. in oceanography from the University of Rhode Island. His research focuses on ocean climate and carbon cycle dynamics over geologic time with a specific focus on periods of extreme warming. He reconstructs paleo-ocean temperature and chemistry via analysis of microfossils recovered from sediment archives to address questions ranging from the nature of extreme greenhouse warming and ocean acidification to the history of the Antarctic glaciation. So welcome to Planet Watch, Jim.
3: It's uh, a pleasure to be here, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you very much for being here. we've been wanting to get you on the show for quite some time. And and, uh, I know Joe is excited about it. So because his electric car broke down, let's hope (laughs) he can get over here in time to ask a few questions uh, as he uh, makes his way here. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in the topic of early Earth and studying this, what we'll talk about, which is the PETM. There's a hot moment on Earth a long time ago. How did you first get interested in studying that?
3: Um, When I started graduate school, I was um, working on the KT Boundary extinctions. This is the time when the dinosaurs went extinct, and um, that was really exciting. And during that period, uh, we understood that a meteorite struck the earth uh, and caused the extinctions. The evidence was fairly compelling, and so as I was wrapping up my Ph.D., I started thinking about... um, sort of these other major biotic transitions um, in more recent history toward the present day. These typically occur at uh, what we call the epic boundaries, these major subdivisions of time that were essentially set up uh, based on the recognition of uh, turnover in uh, fossils that could be traced over uh, vast areas of the planets. So this is effectively the way that uh, early geologists divided up uh, time and um, after the kt boundary extinction uh or the discovery of the impact uh, people started looking at some of these other epic boundaries for evidence of impacts and they didn't find anything which got me thinking about so what else could have uh, forced these major biotic turnovers and uh, one idea was that uh, might have something to do with uh, climate change and so at least for uh, uh, the early part of what we call the Cenozoic, this is the time after the K-T boundary extinction, so the last 65 million years, uh, we already knew that the planet uh, went through this sort of gradual warming trend that peaked around 50 million years ago, and then there was this subsequent uh, long-term decline in temperatures so that by about 34 million years ago, Antarctica became cold enough uh, for... uh, ice sheets to form. So we already had this sort of understanding of these long-term changes in climate, um, but what we didn't know um, was the details of the climatic changes occurring during these um, epic boundaries, so the times of these uh, major turnover uh, in biota. And so that kind of caught my interest. Uh, I was starting a postdoc at the University of Michigan, and initially I was focused on this the later part of this transition that from, the, from the greenhouse to the ice house, what we call the yeah, greenhouse to ice house transition when the first ice sheets form on Antarctica. So when I started at Michigan, um, I was basically focused on that question. But while I was there, something interesting happened. Uh, I got a paper to review uh, for Nature, and it was... A paper describing uh, a very abrupt extreme warming event at the Paleocene-Eocene boundary, and this is 56 million years ago. So this would have been a time when the planet was gradually warming, but as it turns out, superposed on that uh, long-term warming was a very sharp transient warming. As far as we could tell, it coincided. It was very close to where we would place the Paleocene-Eocene boundary.
0: And how, how much did it warm in that short period? And what is a short period in geologic time that you're talking so, about?
3: So this one record uh, 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 came from a core uh, that was recovered off of Antarctica, so in the Southern Ocean. And what it showed, uh, both um, based on uh, what we call the oxygenized isotope paleothermometer uh, measurements made on Planktonic and benthic uh, fossils it showed that the, both the surface and the deep ocean off of Antarctica warm by about five to six degrees centigrade in what looked like uh, less than ten thousand years or so, and then uh, from this peak, you get this gradual recovery in temperature. It takes something like a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand years for uh, temperatures to sort of settle back down to what we would call the pre event um, uh, excursion, so that that in itself was interesting, but what was even more interesting uh, was in the same core, they found evidence of a change in the ratio of c thirteen to c twelve the stable isotopes of carbon um, within the, the the global ocean uh, carbon reservoir, and uh, what they found essentially was a, a, a sudden uh, drop in the ratio of C13 or C12, which could be uh, representing, uh, certainly representing a major perturbation to the carbon cycle. And as we subsequently discovered, it was indicating a massive input of C13 depleted uh, carbon. Okay. So this was an indication that uh, this warming, it was the first indication that, that this warming was in, indeed uh, driven by a sudden input of carbon or an in, emissions of carbon into the atmosphere ocean system.
0: And you're not sure what caused it, whether it was volcanoes or at nobody's time, sure it at, at, at this
3: point. I could say, uh, honestly, we still don't know. Uh, a lot of my colleagues think they know and they may know, but um, there are probably multiple uh, uh, potential sources for this carbon.
0: In the, in the National Geographic article about this, which is on our Facebook page, they said, you know, if you were swimming in the waters off of the eastern seaboard at that time, it would be like the Caribbean. And if you were swimming in the Arctic, it would be like 70 degrees, which is very, you know, if you just think about that for a minute, it would be like being in Santa Barbara or Mexico if you were in the Arctic back then. Just to give it context, you know, think about that. Uh, that's a lot of warming. Um, we do have Joe on the line. Um, hi, Joe. We have hi, you-
4: can, you, can you hear me okay? I'm on the speakerphone here.
0: Can you get a are you driving?
4: Can Can you? No. Well, I'm being driven. And by the way, the electric car is just fine. It didn't break down. It was a logistical snafu. You know, we <laughs> can't involved.
0: hear you very well. I think we'll just wait till you come in person because you're really uh, faint. Hang
4: on. Let me take you. Off. Let, 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 you know, let me take you off speakerphone. Okay. Uh, can you hear me better now?
0: Only slightly better, yeah. Um, But we'll just listen to Jim mostly, and you're on your way, so yay. Yeah, I'll be there in
4: about seven minutes.
0: Okay, we'll just uh, see you then. (laughs) Um, Magic of modern technology. So here we are in a really warm world. Yes. What did it spark in your mind about connecting it to understanding that period, to understanding what's happening now? How did you start thinking about those two events, the one that we're engaged in now and the one all those millions of years ago?
3: Well, but what we uh, began to realize was that the um, perturbation itself, the rate of warming and the rate of carbon emissions uh, were, in effect, uh, not that much unlike what is happening today may happen in the future. Um, the... Current uh, carbon emission rates are certainly higher or faster than uh, what we have uh, documented for this particular event. But what we realized was that this was a natural experiment, a greenhouse experiment, that occurred 56 million years ago. It's one of the few that we know of uh, in Earth history. The others are uh, in much deeper time, hundreds of millions of years ago. And so... It was clear that this provided an opportunity for us to um, test aspects of uh, greenhouse uh, climate theory, uh, aspects of carbon cycle d- dynamics, um, and and uh, most interesting, I would I would say at least uh, during the early period was that we realized that the ocean became acidified, um, as it is today with. Uh, the oceans absorbing uh, CO2. So here you have, um, in the past, basically a case study uh, um, of global warming uh, driven by carbon emissions. And so you realize this is an opportunity to uh, test various ideas about um, climate sensitivity to greenhouse forcing, ocean acidification, uh, what are the processes that uh, buffer ocean acidification. There are certainly ideas about that, Um, and here was an opportunity to test those ideas, and then um, certainly the the concern about uh, uh, the biotic response to uh, both global warming and also uh, ocean acidification.
0: Well, let's talk about those. I I know as humans, we're rather self-centered, and we want to know like, did species like ours make it through that and to the other side evolutionarily, or back down to the plankton level, because that's the food chain in the ocean. What happened there? So what about land species? What can we generalize about that period, about who made it through the evolutionary bottleneck and who didn't?
3: Well, it's interesting what happens on land. And in fact, this is one of the first things that um, that we, we were able to connect to the global warming, which is that there's actually a, a major radiation of, of land mammals at The onset of the early Eocene, so in the immediate aftermath of this event. And uh, what it's related to is as the planet warmed, uh, the biogeographic uh, gradients of virtually everything um, got pushed poleward, as you would expect. As it gets warmer and warmer, the, the polar bounds of virtually every species gets pushed poleward, okay? And so... Uh, this includes uh, subtropical fauna and flora. Um, yeah.
0: Coconut trees growing at the North Pole. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> Pretty I mean, weird. You get yeah,
3: crocodiles, <laughs> oh uh, turtles, gosh. palm trees in, in places like northern Canada. Wow. Uh, we see fossils of these, but the um, there are these high latitude land bridges um, across the Bering Sea between Asia and North America, and also between uh, North America and Europe, there's still land bridges, at least briefly uh, at the onset of this event. And it gets warm enough at those latitudes that subtropical fauna and flora can actually migrate across the continent, those high-latitude land bridges, and disperse. And what happened was there was a major dispersal of uh, species from Southeast Asia that ultimately ended up in North America. And this is something that the paleontologists, the vertebra- vertebrate paleontologists, had recognized uh, well before we discovered the event. They just didn't know why. Uh, they see all these new species appear, and, um, and then they eventually evolve off uh, in different directions on, on the different continents. So what happens is that the event itself is like a gateway. It, it opens up briefly. It allows for migration, Of species between the continents and then it closes it shuts down and so once you disperse the species um, mutations can take hold and you get uh, evolution of new species so can
0: I ask if studying this gives you some hope that even if we're really mucking with the planet's climate uh, some millions of years hence there will just be a whole different bunch of species and very likely not human beings at all but things we can't imagine someday will come on board
3: well you know these if, if you go back through earth history and you look at the times of rapid speciation almost certainly they're they're connected to dispersal events and and that's hap that will happen because of the climatic changes that are occurring but it's also happening because of the way um, we've introduced um, um, invasive species into other areas and so ultimately yeah and if, if a million years from now you look back at this time interval um, what
0: if we're there to look back what at paleontologists all. <laughs>
3: will see is some um, uh, you know change in the rate of speciation there'll be extinction of course there'll and, be
0: paleontologists uh, <laughs>
3: well we'll see i, I, don't I, know.
0: I, uh, no, I cockroach I paleontologist i often have my doubts but i i can't quite imagine we will yeah. be there 3 million years from now but you never know some some strange ancestor thereof
4: can, let's see. I can't hear myself, uh, but look. Can you hear me? Okay.
0: <laughs> Joe, thing? it's yeah. radio. We can all hear you, but <laughs> you, you. Anyway, anyway hi, 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 welcome. Jim.
4: Hey, yeah, uh, yeah. And the, the electric car was just fine. It's it's uh, it's running like a champ. I, it was a logistical snafu. No I,
0: worries. You're I, it here didn't now. Have it
4: available to me. Yeah, we'll keep on our uh, anyway, focus here. We're, we're talk- talking geologic time
3: here. Or, or we're talking uh, about radi- this radio hot time, time. Really hot time. <laughs> so th- there are two more things I should mention, though. One is simply that um, land plants also. Uh, uh, show in parts of North America, for instance, uh, at the onset of this warming event, uh, the diversity drops fairly rapidly, and um, and then eventually you see these subtropical species move in. But um, that initial drop in diversity actually turns out to be associated with aridification um, in places like uh, uh, a con- Wyoming.
0: Aridification, drying.
3: It got drier first, <laughs> yeah, um, hotter and drier, um, and then eventually... Um, after the peak of the PTM things start to cool down a little bit then it gets uh, 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 more humid I would say and you see subtropical flora migrating up into uh, uh, say the the northern part of the U.S., for instance.
0: Are we talking an ice-free world, or just very small amount it's, of? Us?
3: It's generally an ice-free world even before the event. Uh, we think, if anything, on Antarctica it was probably mostly permafrost, and maybe at high elevations there would have been um, small uh, ice sheets, mm. uh, very small ones. So. And they said
0: the ocean would be like two or two hundred fifty feet higher than it is now if there was no ice on earth
3: roughly yeah yeah mm-hmm. it would have been a period of high relatively high sea level to begin with although we do see a, a slight rise of about a 10 meter uh, rise of sea level during the 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 uh, warming event itself
0: so it got dry first on land which is not what you'd expect from you know climate change and then it got wet again
3: yeah i mean it, it if you consider the dynamics of atmospheric circulation the hadley cell circulation the descending limbs of the hadley cells today are uh, regions that are dry, uh, deserts, all the deserts exist. And those um, atmospheric cells, the large-scale atmospheric uh, cells, would certainly respond to uh, additional energy. As chances are the, the northern or the poleward boundaries of those, um, uh, the limbs of those cells would uh, move. And you can imagine the, the, the dry areas sort of uh, passing through or over an area and so
0: over many thousands of years though
3: yeah over yeah. thousands of years and mm-hmm. but just about every place we see on land there's evidence of of intense what, what I would call intensification of the hydrologic cycle and and we we think that is 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 mainly a shift toward especially in the mid latitudes a shift toward a more monsoon like uh, climate uh, for lack of a better descriptive term very simply that the dry seasons get longer and the wet season's shorter, but uh, maybe more intense.
0: We may be seeing that this year. And I was going to ask you about the first story we ran. What is it with the snow on the, on the pyramids? Is that an example <laughs> of something weird happening at the Arctic?
3: Uh, it's just you're seeing uh, uh, more extremes uh, in the, the seasonal cycles um, or even the longer cycles. So, yeah, more pronounced uh, warm uh, intervals. Um. Droughts.
0: If, if you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. This is my co host, Joe Jordan.
3: Yeah, and you can email us, by the way,
4: radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. I'd been sort of tuning in as I came over, and uh, the most recent part of your discussion here, I wanted to ask about okay, so you had these land bridges for a while when it was more arid, but then it got, uh, the sea level went way up, so a lot of those land bridges were cut off, and I guess uh, evolution was affected uh, in a, in a Pretty relatively short period of time. uh, Really different regimes of uh, evolution of life. Is that?
3: Yeah, I think I think with this particular event, because the sea level was already high, and again the 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 configuration of the land bridges then uh, would be different than today. So you probably had a more um, stable connection Mm. between uh, Europe or say uh, Asia. We'll say from Siberia into Alaska. Um, except that you know, the barrier to migration is cold, uh, certainly for subtropical species and so and I think this the window was simply warming that region for say ten thousand years, um, so say the peak uh, period of warmth, and then as a, as the climate started to cool, that window closed, so the barrier is now reestablished and so
0: you said in that National Geographic article, I believe it was you, but it might have been the person writing the article. Again, it's on our website, that if you were in San Francisco then during the PETM, it would have been 100 degrees during the day and 100 degrees at night for year after year after year. Like no variation. It would stay above 100, which is hard on life and on everybody. So just to get a perspective, that's what... The world was like back then around here
3: yeah so that brings us to the third point about the impacts on biota so in the marine um, in the oceans what we see is the same thing that the the biogeographic gradients of these um, plankton for instance are extended poleward Uh, off of antarctica we see these subtropical Planktonic uh, forams uh, suddenly appear during this event. Forams is a kind of fossil. They're creature. zooplankton. Uh, Foraminifera. They they, <laughs> they produce um, uh, shells of calcite, and they're very common in the ocean today. So
0: they didn't get dissolved in the last. Heating of the ocean or acidification of the ocean, though you can still study them.
3: Well, they actually do get dissolved in, in the deeper parts of the ocean. This has been a problem for us uh, because we often measure these to um, to get ocean temperature and the carbon chemistry, and so it's been um, that's been uh, an obstacle to some extent in reconstructing the uh, changes in ocean temperature and chemistry. We've been able to find ways to get around that. But it's an important part of the uh, response of the, the ocean uh, chemistry. But the, the one thing that we've discovered of late is that in, along the equator, um, these plankton uh, completely disappear. Uh, all the plankton that would tip, you would typically find in the upper, say, 100 to 200 meters of the water column in places like uh, Tanzania and Nigeria suddenly disappear along with... We're talking about the, the calcareous uh, plankton, which are probably the most abundant, as well as things that are fairly uh, hardy, like dinoflagellates, um, completely disappear. And we think it's because uh, it got too hot. They basically um, got to a point where they just emigrated out away from. And so you're, you're looking at, um, effectively, a, a huge drop in the diversity of the tropical oceans because of of temperature,
4: and so right at that event, there's this sharp ch- color change in the sediments because the uh, the white, uh, more calcium-bearing organisms disappear, leaving behind the the redder soils. that uh, kind of and it ha-
3: within 10,000 years? Apparently, this all happens. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and that again, part of that. Uh, relates to uh, what Rachel was talking about, the acidification of most of the deep ocean effectively uh, dissolves away the shells, and so what remains are these clay layers. Often they're bright red, and um, they occur to water depths of, say, 500 meters or less so any any place in the ocean uh, below that depth say uh, 500 meters you often see these dissolution horizons although just recently we've been working along the mid-atlantic margin from uh, washington dc up into new jersey and we're also finding that the dissolution layer moves up into these shallow marine sequences as well which is interesting because we wouldn't have expected that uh, based on our estimates of how much carbon was released and how fast. And so something uh, peculiar is going on with the coastal oceans. Now now we're talking about shallow marine, uh, highly productive ocean um, that we're all accustomed to uh, seeing just offshore. And it, again, at the very onset of this event, uh, we seem to have massive dissolution or at least. We, just, we don't see a lot of the, 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 the carbonate uh, or the calcifying uh, marine organisms, and this is something that um, has been a bit of a surprise. It may be that uh, in coastal oceans, because of changes in runoff and eutrophication, nutrient inputs, that there's an added effect on acidification, hmm. so it's sort of amplifying the pH changes. That could be a part of it. Um, Or maybe just the productivity or the abundances of these species declines. And we haven't uh, quite figured out the answer to that yet. We're working on that problem right now.
0: That's what makes science interesting. Uh. If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch, and we're speaking with Professor Jim Zakos from UC Santa Cruz. He is the chair of the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department, and he studies uh, the last big time the Earth warmed up so hot that it changed everything and what that's telling us about what we might be in for in the next few thousand years
4: and just in case you are recently joining us here or even if you've listened to the whole show it might be easy to get confused there are sort of two big striking events way back in the same general time frame there was one 65 million years ago where a big rock <laughs> maybe did an air burst above the yucatan or slammed into the yucatan and uh, i guess it slammed into the yucatan and uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs is thought now to be Pretty closely related to that event. Not that the asteroid directly squished all the dinosaurs. I'm sure it got a few of them, but it raised a lot of stuff into the atmosphere that snuffed out a lot of life. But then, 65, you reverse that 56 million years ago. That's nine million years later. That's the thing we're talking about, the PETM, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which is an amazing event. And we seem to be hell-bent on replicating that experiment. And the thing is, we have exact results of what happened before, a whole lot of carbon going into the atmosphere in a fairly short period of time. So its we don't even have to speculate too much. I mean, we can speculate about evolution of life, but we're kind of interested in what's going to happen to humans. And one big burning question I have for you is there's a lot of debate about are we going to wake up the methane monster? Deep in the you know in the ocean sediments and in the tundra and the permafrost. Um, I mean, if you get methane out there in addition to all this carbon dioxide, you know, methane is per molecule you know, like 20-some odd times more effective at trapping infrared and you know blowing up the greenhouse effect. So <laughs> some people say, well, that's not really all that realistic. We're we're even with heating up through lots of carbon dioxide release, we're not going to release that much of the methane. But uh, I don't know uh, what do you think? what's the latest that you know of uh, Tell the, us the, the clath it ain't rates. so
0: dr Jim
4: the
3: clathrates the, clath rates, <laughs> the methane hydrates deep in the. we,
0: we want the good news no, but but of course, you have to tell us the <laughs> yeah, truth because you're like a scientist
3: <laughs> Well, you know, it's hard to say I think what again, uh, one of the benefits of having an event from the past that uh, ran full course is we know that the amount of carbon that was released was at least. 6,000 gigatons of carbon. And to put that into perspective, that's our current estimate for the entire fossil fuel reservoir. So if we were to burn all the oil and gas and coal, um, we would ultimately uh, emit something on the order of about 5,000, 6,000 um, gigatons of carbon. And we're probably finding, that number is probably changing all the time as we find new reserves of, 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 of fossil fuels. But the bottom line is, is that uh, to get that much carbon, um, almost certainly uh, some of us believe that uh, carbon had to have been released in feedback mode. And you mentioned methane hydrates. Hydrates um, are pretty extensive today. People estimate thousands of petagrams of carbon within hydrates. That number goes up and down depending on who you talk to. But it, it's, it's a fairly large amount of carbon, no doubt. And uh, for the stability of hydrates, uh, uh, these ice molecules with uh, a methane, uh, wrapped around methane, um, they, they require cold temperatures and high pressure. And we know exactly what the temperature, uh, pressure conditions are to maintain hydrates. And what I can tell you is at the start of the, this Paleocene Thermal Maximum, the ocean was cold enough for methane hydrates to be stored at least in uh, some of the deeper parts of the ocean. But by the peak of the event, there's no place in the ocean where hydrates would have been stable. So the water's warmed up by like almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit, even at depth. Yeah, so almost certainly um, that carbon, whatever amount was stored in hydrates, was added to the emissions of carbon. It may be part of the reason why the event is so large, why there's so much carbon. In addition to that, Antarctica would have been completely permafrost. Are um, mostly permafrost, uh, except for the you know the highest elevations, and that uh, region would have certainly have thawed, uh, given uh, the estimates of of temperature change around Antarctica, and again this would have uh, prov- been a source of positive feedback of carbon, another uh, potential uh, major source, and then there were extensive peat deposits, places where uh, soils are relatively moist accumulating organic carbon. I mentioned earlier that uh, we see drying out of those regions and that would have uh, allowed carbon from uh, those reservoirs, those soil reservoirs, to have been oxidized. And so you begin to see where um, these these slow positive, we call them slow, relatively slow, as, as opposed to fast feedbacks, could have effectively all started to uh, give up carbon and and, and push this event to the extreme that we see could that happen in the future yeah if we if we certainly uh, start pushing the planet's temperature higher and higher uh, these things will happen there's no question of whether they uh, they will happen it's just a question of how fast and how much carbon are we really talking about um, with and then there's the concern that once uh uh, these what I call the reduced carbon reservoirs start to release carbon that you get this positive feedback, additional warming um, that accelerates the the process so that that 's something that we probably don 't have to worry about in the next century i 'm thinking that it 's going to take it would take longer that we 'd have to sustain warming for at least say out to two thousand one hundred or longer and then you might argue that um, these, what we call potentially slow feedbacks could start to kick in. The permafrost is is probably going to melt fairly quickly, so that would be one of the first places where you would start to see uh, this sort of um, carbon cycle feedback, okay? so.
4: And uh, Jim was talking about uh, 5,000 petagrams of carbon. That's the same. A petagram is the same as a A gigaton, uh, a a billion metric tons. Petagram means, P-E-T-A means a one with 15 zeros after it. A quadrillion grams is the same as uh, a billion metric tons. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, well, you know, it's like the human race has been blessed with this, the evidence of this horrific event uh that happened before and so we we've been given a heads up you know a warning shot across the bow It'd be nice if we could wake up and get a clue and realize what we're doing to things and especially to us <laughs> i mean you know as i always say, the earth's gonna be just fine you know people say save the earth well it's the human race that i guess we need to save <laughs> need to worry about and everything so. else
0: that uh are connected with uh, this yes, particular all the, planet, climate, all the ecosystems. We everything love. that can survive only in this temperate kind of world that we've got going right now, and so that kind of is a good segue to talk about knowing all that you know. Um, how would you characterize where we are now and what's to come? You, you just sort of gave us a little clue about you know, hundred years, not two hundred years. Are we going to see like runaway feedback loops in the next? Fifty, Or what do you think is going to happen based on what you know from the past well, and think, how fast I, this I think, is going? I
3: think with the carbon cycle, um, it, it'll take longer for those feedbacks to kick in. As I said, uh, maybe a century and further down the road. I tend to think of those as slow feedbacks. Um, the fast feedbacks involve... Uh, things like ice sheets, sea ice, that um, can respond fairly quickly uh, to uh, changes in temperature. And we're already seeing uh, the response of Arctic sea ice diminishing very rapidly. And there, there's a very strong feedback, which is simply... I think everyone understands this, that the ice is shiny, has high albedo, and by High reflectivity. High reflectivity, so by removing the ice... Um, effectively, you're adding, you're you're making it um, easier for the the uh, sun's energy to, to uh, be absorbed by the land surface and the ocean, and so you effectively accelerate the warming. That that's a fast feedback, and we're seeing the effect of that. I think the Arctic's probably warming. It's the fastest warming part of the planet and maybe warming faster than uh, some of the early model predictions. And that's sort of scary. Yeah, same same is true with land ice, of course, the, the, the ice sheets. Yeah, I guess
4: we should make no mistake about it. These fast feedbacks are nevertheless serious. I mean they can pack a wallop that's going to matter to us, and then you're talking about these slower but even more gigantic feedbacks. That yeah, okay, those are down the road, but we got we got to deal with what what's happening now and soon.
0: There have been a lot of articles, and it seems like quibbling in a, some ways. Like, do we have five years? Do we have twenty to stop our own progress toward you know the t- point of no return? And trying to pinpoint. Where that is, and I'm not sure how useful that discussion is, but I certainly read about it and wonder, you know, what the point is of discussing whether we have 5, 10, or 25 years to radically alter our own behaviors in order to make a difference in the long run. Do you find those conversations useful in the scientific world or in the social world of policy to try to motivate us, or do they have potentially the opposite effect?
3: Um. You know, I hear people talk about the the fact that even if we started to reduce carbon emissions, the planet would continue to warm for a while. And that's true. There's thermal inertia in the system. And so that aside, the the problem is that um, we we have some understanding that the uh, climate system response to forcing is nonlinear. It's not linear. If it were linear, then it might be easier to say, you know, this is how the climate is going to change. And we're fairly confident in that and that we're not going to get any surprises. If, if this is what emissions do, this is how the planet's temperature will change. And what I think a lot of climate scientists are concerned about are the tipping points. And we've heard that term used before, thresholds, and that the system could uh, jump uh, with with gradual force, what we would call gradual forcing, um, uh, response slowly, then suddenly jump from one state to another, and these are often referred to as bifurcation points in in the climate community. And the problem is, is that we don't know exactly where those tipping points are. I at least I haven't heard anyone say, yeah, well, once we get to this temperature, uh, say. T- two degrees of warming we're going to cross one of these thresholds and so the concern is that um not knowing that but understanding that the climate system uh can respond in in a very non-linear way we're we're basically playing russian roulette you know every day every year that uh, co2 levels continue to rise um we have the potential to get closer and closer to one of these uh unexpected surprises
4: i got a question for you jim Um, You know we talked about the oceans and uh, the acidification and of course uh, the oceans aren't actually becoming acid yet the the ph is still such that they are alkaline but they are less alkaline than they were they are moving in the direction toward acidity but um a recent result which had i been here earlier i was going to actually do a little news story that uh, out of san diego they're finding that the oxygen in the oceans is kind of plummeting and um, I'm wondering, you know, what you know about this. And in particular, it's probably a chemical thing. It's not just the overheating of the atmosphere that interacts with the oceans. But uh, what, what do you know about this uh, threat to the oxygen in the yeah. oceans?
3: It, it comes from um, a couple of different factors. One is just simply warming uh, the ocean, uh, lowers the ability of, of seawater to hold dissolved oxygen. There's that. There are nutrient fluxes, anthropogenic um, we'll say from agriculture that could uh, potentially drive high productivity and then uh, drive up respiration which consumes oxygen and um, stratification of the ocean uh, as it gets warmer, the surface ocean gets warmer, you actually slow down the the vertical overturning, the mixing which is how uh, deeper parts of the ocean get oxygen basically it has to be mixed down and so the funny thing is uh, – well, it's not funny. During the, the PETM, this global warming event uh, 56 million years ago, we also see um, uh, an increase in um, anoxia at mid-depths within the ocean. Not the entire ocean, but at these sort of – I shouldn't say mid-depths, shallow um, – the, the uh, uh, shallow parts of the upper ocean – uh, ex- what we call expansion of the uh, O2 minimum zone uh, becomes uh, 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 a bit more intense, and we've seen this globally. It's it's very transient. It lasts just well, by geologic standards, it lasts for a few thousand years. Um, but we think it's it's partly due to um, a slowdown in the overturning or the mixing of the ocean mm-hmm. and that's a transient state because once the deeper part of the ocean starts to warm then the stratification breaks down and the overturning um rate resumes comes back so i think um, none of this surprises me these discussions of 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 lower oxygen levels um being observed in the in the current ocean so yeah, just uh kind of discouraging to
4: <laughs> hear that yeah, it's it's happening and we sort of know why. And uh yeah, the thing that is frustrating is that unfortunately a whole lot of a whole lot of hell is pro- hell to pay is kind of baked in even if we completely stop eliminating I mean emitting carbon yeah, right now, carbon emissions. If we eliminate carbon emissions right now, uh big stuff is on the way uh, that is not a pretty picture so we just got to do the best we can starting now (laughs) and uh figure out i mean the science such as you're such a great exemplar of of how things work in the earth ocean system how they have worked how they do now and will work but also you know the engineering side of what are we going to do what how how we're going to better do our infrastructure as a civilization, you know, as a, as a species. Are we going to make it? It's <laughs> so, uh, the
0: question of the hour. And um, <laughs> I want to thank you for giving us a view back in time that gives me a better perspective on the long view. I mean, sometimes we get worried about the short view, which we ought to be. But there is something comfort about, comforting about knowing life has a huge capacity for evolving and Adapting to all kinds of conditions. And unless we, you know, do something really horrible like nuclear bombing, nuclear winter, then I think other species will just find a way. Maybe not ours, and hopefully ours, but again, given what you've said, um, anything's possible. And it's an interesting view to look back.
4: I guess in the past it was lots of big volcanoes that are thought to be at least some of that carbon... Injection into the atmosphere, and I guess what we got going on now is millions of teensy weensy little volcanoes—you know, tailpipes and smokestacks. Yeah, and exactly.
3: I think I think you can think of it that way. You know, we we do think that event was 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 triggered by a sudden rise in carbon emissions from volcanoes. So it would be effectively like fossil fuel emissions today
0: human Um, volcano yes exactly Well, well thank you so much for coming by and talking to us we've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time professor jim zekos of uc santa cruz earth and planetary sciences department not just of but the chair who's heading up research there and it's great to get um First-hand report on what's being studied right now thank you so much
3: you're welcome
4: yeah, and uh hope hope you can hang out for just a few more minutes and maybe talk a little after the show i got, got a riddle for you among other things
0: i think but he has uh, a date so we'll let you go <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> have a great well, time at the jazz concert and thank oh, you for yeah. being here all right thank and uh, joe has some ephemera and phenomena for you and perhaps a riddle so um thank you so much jim Thanks. and he'll be back again maybe some other time
4: Yeah, for an update on the next million years or whatever.
0: (laughs) On the next millennial, he'll be back on Planet Watch.
4: (laughs) Bye-bye. Yeah, so, uh, well, let's see. Speaking of time, you know, we had this time crunch earlier where I was late. But between now and next week, something is going to happen that a whole lot of you out there are going to forget about and miss. <laughs> Namely, you will miss our show if you tune in at what you think is 2 p.m. or California time because we have the time change, believe it or not. Seems like it used to always be in April. But, uh, yeah, it happens at 2 a.m. on the East Coast uh, and then, well, 2 a.m. here, you know, three hours later. But interestingly, you get this accordion effect where for an hour, the East Coast leaps to where it'll be two hours ahead of the central time zone. And then the central time zone catches up an hour later, but then it's two hours ahead of the mountain time zone, and so on. And the mountain time zone is two hours ahead of us, et cetera. So, uh, anyway, set, you know, they say spring forward. Um, and just do that next Saturday night, and you'll be able to hear us on time next Sunday. Um, you know that stuff about the, the extreme cold in Europe? Uh, there are all these frozen canals in uh, Holland... Well, hey, you know, you remember Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates? I'm <laughs> remembering these stories of people skating on the canals. Well, they're doing that again in uh, in the Netherlands now. And um, well, I got to tell you, um, it—I've said this a couple times recently, but Mercury and Venus are putting on quite a display now in the western sky tonight, in particular. If you can get to a clear, nice view of the low western horizon, you will see bright Venus and not quite so bright but still increasingly prominent Mercury up and to the right of Venus. Right close to each other and then the next few nights uh, Mercury will be speeding on up farther above and to the right of Venus and these planets will be earning their name from the Greek word for the wanderers the wandering lights in the sky so Venus is getting more and more it's going to be roaring back as the evening star for the next several months Mercury is only going to be visible for the next week and a half or two and it will be its best appearance of the year in the evening sky So, uh, another, i got to announce something for you Santa Cruz locals. We have a climate conference. The annual UCSC Climate Conference is coming this week. But this time, instead of a weekend, they're doing just one event, one evening. It'll be at the Rio Theater this uh, Wednesday, March 7th. And Scott Wing, who is actually, uh, he's a paleobotanist mentioned in that same National Geographic article that featured our guest here, um, Jim Zakos. Um, He is from the Smithsonian Natural History Museum, and he will be speaking among a couple of other people and uh, on, uh, what is it, Uh, human and wild ecosystems on a hot planet. (laughs) So that will be pretty interesting. And, uh, well, let's see... uh, I just wanted to mention, we'll have a we'll have a guest sometime soon who can tell us about bioluminescence. The reason I bring that up is that uh, Jim mentioned dinoflagellates, ancient creatures, ancient versions of creatures we now still have. And you can actually paddle a kayak out on Elkhorn Slough at night certain times of year, and you can see green glowing all around you because of these dinoflagellates. So, um, well, let's see. Oh, I was going to ask you a riddle. I had a riddle for you. Here we go. Uh, one of... Um, Jim's colleagues studied leaves, fossil leaves, hundreds of fossil leaves that he'd gotten from this place in Wyoming. And so this brings to mind a little riddle, a mind-bender that I've been wanting to run by you. Imagine you have a forest of trees, okay? And let's say that the number of leaves on the tree with the most leaves, in other words, the maximum number of leaves on any one of those trees, is less than the number of the trees in the forest, If that's the case, then at least two of the trees have to have the same number of leaves. (laughs) So let me run that by you one more time. If the maximum number of leaves on any tree is less than the number of trees in that forest, then at least two of the trees have to have the same number of leaves. So your your mission, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> or if you care, is prove that. You know, prove that to yourself. It's, it's easy. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It has to do with just sort of how we count. So uh, you can email us, uh, the first person to email me a little clear, intuitive explanation of that little situation. Uh, we'll, we'll get you, we'll think up some kind of little, I don't know, chocolate prize or something. <laughs> <laughs> you, you
0: better make good on that, Joe. <laughs> yeah. You're promising chocolate. You better deliver. Yeah. <clears throat> Indeed. Well, <laughs> well uh, this has been an amazing show, and uh, I want to thank you, Joe, for lining up Jim Zakos. It's been an amazing discussion. I'd also like to thank uh, Michael Zwirling for being our sponsor of oh, yeah. this program. Thank you, Michael. Hey, MZ for um, making it possible for us to broadcast out of the KSEO studios and also on stations in North Carolina and Columbus, Ohio. So thank you to all of our listeners there for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always write to us at the following...
4: Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com.
0: And you can go to planetwatchradio.com to subscribe to our podcast. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
4: And I'm Joe Jordan. Keep Thanks. an eye on the sky.
0: Thanks for listening.